I think Chris mentioned it earlier. One of the things that I do now is um, lead something called the Barnabas Teaching Center, which is part of St. Hild College. We meet up at Crooks just up the hill. There's a few of you who are studying with us or have, but if you're interested in studying theology in a really life-giving Christian environment, it's right on your doorstep, and you'd be very welcome to come to an open day and check out what we offer. Um, We moved here to Sheffield over 13 years ago, believe it or not. My accent hasn't changed a bit. Uh, Well, actually, it has changed. I'm from Texas originally, and I no longer say y'all and things like that, so you'll be glad to know. But um, we moved here to plant a church here in town called Antioch, and we led that for about eight years and then handed that over, and I've been focusing more on training and teaching since then. So... Um, We tried to live the book of Acts, and we still are trying to live the book of Acts in different ways, and I'm just personally captured by this story. And what I want to do this morning, it's going to be a bit of a different message. Normally, you read a passage and you preach on that. We don't have just one text. What I want to do is try to walk through the story, the first bit of Acts, and focus on five, yes, five, I'm feeling ambitious, five stories from Acts, and ask the question, what is Acts saying about the church? How could that be helpful for us as we reflect on our own experience of church and on God's calling to us here as a church as well. If you have your Bible or your Bible on a phone, it might be helpful for you to just walk with us through as we go. We're going we're gonna to move quickly, um, and I'm going to summarize a lot, but I'm hoping that there will be some new things for us to think about. And as we go, please be asking God, what is he highlighting to you? What's the one or two things that are very specifically for you? I like to think that Acts is the story of what the church can be. It paints this vivid picture, and as you read it, you're drawn into the story. It's really exciting, actually. If you, if you get past your over-familiarity, the story is an incredible story. But also, quite quickly, it provokes you because you begin to compare your experience of church and what it means to follow Jesus to what you read in the pages of Acts, and you go, wow, there must be a whole lot more. It's a challenging, provoking provocative story, and it's that way on purpose. And I pray that it will provoke us, that it will invite us into considering how it could be challenging us as a church and us as followers of Jesus today. So, of course, um, Jesus, after his life and his ministry, his teaching, his miracles, uh, his death and his resurrection, he says to a small group of his followers, he says, wait for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on you. And that comes when? What's the name of the day when the Holy Spirit comes? Pentecost. Yeah, you guys know this. I'm kind of assuming we're pretty familiar with the basic outline of the book. So they're gathered together. It's this dramatic experience. Pentecost is the pivotal turning point because it's when the Spirit of God is poured out on the church. 
And of course, there's tongues of fire, and people are making fun of them because it seems like they're drunk. And Peter stands up and gives this amazing sermon, and um, lots of people are saved and baptized. But I want you to look at Acts 2 quickly. Um, it's a narrative, of course, and so we want to pay attention to the narrative breaks. Where are the breaks in the story where there's a clear change? Um, a big a big break or location change or something like that. And if you look closely at Acts 2, you actually see there aren't any breaks. The, the, the big break is at the beginning of chapter 3 when um, Peter and John are going to the temple and they come across the beggar at the gate called Beautiful. So what does this mean? One thing I want to say is that actually the The climax of the Pentecost story of the Spirit being poured out isn't miracles, tongues, um, even lots of salvations. The climax of that story is the birth of the church at Jerusalem. Acts 2, 42 through 47, that final passage in Acts 2, it's one continuous narrative arc all the way through. And so the sending of the Spirit is really ultimately about the birth of the church. And for Luke, and you can see it quite consistently throughout Acts, when the Spirit comes in power, the church is birthed, the church is built up, the church is established and nurtured. And so I want to look a little more in depth at what that first church was like And this passage, I think, will be very familiar to many of us here. You've heard it before. Uh, Let's read it and um, read it as if you haven't heard it many times before. See what stands out to you. They devoted themselves. So this is that first church in Jerusalem just after Pentecost, just after the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this is Luke's description of them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Isn't that a beautiful picture of church? Every one of those descriptions is so significant about what the church can be. And I think Luke is kind of presenting this as like the prototype, as like the, the ideal picture of church. And it's quite challenging. And I, I sort of just wanted to break it down quickly. There's a lot of different ways that you could do this. But um, I like to think of it in terms of these characteristics. And as we go through them, think, what are our strengths as a church? And where are places where God might want to strengthen us? Or help us. Um, they devoted themselves to four things. The, the adhering to the apostles' teaching. Um, the fellowship. Anybody know the Greek word for fellowship? Well done. Koinonia. One of my favorite Greek words. Um, it, it's a blanket phrase. I think actually it 
describes pretty much everything from here is part of this fellowship, this biblical fellowship of the believers. Um, The breaking of bread together, eating together was fundamental to that community. This could have been communion, but it was also just the sense of eating together with one another. And if you know me at all, you know I take this very seriously. Um, It's amazing how food makes a difference in building community. And um, that was an important part of their community. I'm sure it's an important part of ours as well. Uh, Prayer, and that word for prayer isn't just about speaking to God. It's about communion with God, listening to, responding to, um, abiding in. It's about everything, you know, worship, our whole sense of connection to God. So those were the four things in 242 that they um, devoted themselves to. And then it resulted in five things. A sense of awe. I love that phrase. I think we touched it this morning a bit, at least for me, when we were singing that song, You're Beautiful. And just that sense of awe in God's presence, that sense of his holiness and his beauty and his transcendence, his majesty. This characterized that early church so profoundly, it pervaded their life together. And I think it's something that we are um, discovering and rediscovering again in many ways. Um, Signs and wonders. You know, if you read Acts, it feels kind of like this is just normal. I loved the testimony this morning at the gym. As someone who also goes to the gym, I was trying to imagine offering to lay my hand on the shoulder of one of my fellow um, gym goers. It would be a little, a bit of a stretch, I think, but I love that the healing came because that seems like the normal, typical, ordinary life of the first Christians. It provokes us. Are we that expectant today? Uh, The sharing of goods, you know, this is an amazing one. Um, A couple chapters later in chapter 4, it says that they shared with one another to such an extent that there were no needy among them. Like they eradicated poverty within their community because they were so committed to caring for each other's needs. And I'm sure many of us have experienced this before. We had a couple of, as a family, a couple of crises over the last year. I had a a, a pretty significant car accident, and my son had an appendicitis. And both times, we were so aware of our missional community rallying around us, you know, cooking meals for us, taking care of us. And I just thought, wow, it's incredible when we are meeting the needs of one another in community. That's what this is all about. And this one is quite challenging because it seems that they were very happy to give up what they owned to care for, to care for others. Um, unity. It says togetherness three times, or they were together three times in those few verses. And then finally, um, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, day by day. So it's this rapidly growing, very exciting, and, and, and the important thing to say is that their radical devotion to the first four things 
led to those other things, which, you know, are kind of out of our control in many ways. But that sense of awe, the signs and wonders, the sharing of goods, that immense generosity, the unity, and the the people coming to Christ daily. And so this picture, I'm really captured by that's how church can be and our experience of church can be. And I just wonder, what is God saying to St. Thomas's Philadelphia? What is God saying to Network Church Sheffield today to focus on in this new season that we're coming into? So this picture of the Jerusalem church is foundational for Acts, and I think it's an important lens through which we can look at our own church and our own communities as well. It's quite a high but exciting standard. So we move on from here. You've got some persecution. You've got some boldness, some prayers, some different things happen in the next few chapters. And then you get to Acts 5. Everybody's favorite feel-good passage, right? Ananias and Sapphira. Um, you, I bet you've never heard a sermon preached on Ananias and Sapphira before. Uh, maybe you have. Um, well, that changes today, although for time's sake, I'm going to go through it very quickly. This is a difficult story, isn't it? It's one of those passages that we don't exactly know what to do with. And um, I think looking at the story through the lens of Pentecost and the Spirit's connection with the church can help us to understand what's really going on here. Basically, um, I think the great sin that Ananias and Sapphira committed was not just lying to the Holy Spirit, but violating the sacredness of that community's fellowship. That precious koinonia from 242 that we were just talking about, that, that fellowship which was vulnerable and fragile in these early days of the church. And for whatever reason, it seems that their desire to look good, perhaps their love of money, um, led them to this kind of deceptive, manipulative action And you can see quite dramatically the way the Holy Spirit doesn't just build and establish the church, but protects and guards that community as well. The Spirit is fiercely protective of of His church. And um, if that kind of action and activity would have gone unchecked, particularly in that key foundational era in the life of the church, it would have caused big problems. And so the Spirit goes to extreme measures. And I don't want to say that this is normative, that we could expect this kind of thing today at all, that it would be repeated, but it illustrates a profound truth. And again, I don't have time to unpack it all, but just to say the same Spirit that births the church protects and nurtures it as it grows and develops. And it shows something about God's heart for his church. I think the message, you know, don't mess with the sacred community and unity of the church. The Holy Spirit loves it and will protect it. Treat it with reverence and holy fear. It's interesting, the final verse of that passage, the, 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 the net effect is great fear. And just by the way, that word fear is the same word as awe when it says um, they were filled with awe. It's that same word about the fear of God, the holiness of God. Sees the whole church and all who heard about these events. 
I think this could be a helpful corrective to sometimes I think we're overly casual about the way we think about and treat the church. And there's something about honoring this sacred community, our fellow Christians. We'll find out more in just a bit about why that is. But that story, I think, is saying something to us about how God feels, about how the Holy Spirit feels about the church. So from there, we move on, some more persecutions, Stephen, the first martyr, and somebody really significant gets introduced, Saul, at um, Stephen's martyrdom. And and many of you will know the story. Uh, Basically, out of that comes a wave of persecution which scatters the believers all over that region, out, out of Jerusalem into the other areas. And a few other really exciting things happen, which we're skipping over, and it brings us to Acts 9. And the very famous story of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. This is one, again, that we know, but I want us to think about it very carefully. A few verses from there, verses 3 to 5. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now you can imagine poor Saul. I mean, he has devoted his life to the God he knows. And, you know, bright light, booming voice. He knows this is God, right? Speaking to him. But he's so confused. Why do you persecute me? What kind of a question is that? And so he asks a very good question. Who are you, Lord? Um, I'm not persecuting you. I'm, I'm, I'm persecuting these crazy Christ followers. Who are you? And look at the reply. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, this must have turned his whole life upside down. (laughs) Because he realizes, first of all, that he's very much on the wrong side of this argument. But what's most profound, I don't know if you've caught it in the text, is how deeply Jesus identifies with his church here. He says, no, no, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting these people. He says, You are persecuting me. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Can you see that in the text? To persecute the followers of Jesus is to persecute persecute Christ. And it must have really been foundational for him. It underlines a theology which I think is very true throughout Acts and throughout Scripture. The church is the body of Christ. The church is is Jesus. They are one. You can't separate Jesus from the church. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't really do church. It doesn't, it doesn't work because actually Jesus takes so seriously and personally how his church is treated. They are inseparable. And what does Paul go on to do? He goes on to devote his life not just to Christ, but to his church. And of course, he becomes 
possibly the most fruitful church planter ever, certainly one of the most famous. But I think he understood something very profound in this moment, something that shaped the whole trajectory of his life. To serve the church is to serve Christ. The two are one. Conversely, to persecute or to speak against or to mistreat the church is to mistreat Christ. And Jesus takes it personally. And I wonder what this would mean for us if we really took it seriously. Um, I, as I was preparing this message, I had to repent again for attitudes and times where I have spoken against Jesus' church, his bride. And, um, you know, I, I realize that there may be real hurt there, you know, um, real maybe disappointment or baggage that we're carrying. But I think this is an invitation to say, you know, I'm going to love your church, Jesus, as I love you. And I'm going to see her in a new way. It's kind of like me saying, you know, I hear people say all the time, yeah, things like, um, I love Jesus, but I can't really stand the church. And it's kind of like you saying to me, Daniel, I really love you, but I really can't stand your wife. Which, by the way, nobody has ever said in my life. Uh, But if they did, that wouldn't work very well because we're one. I take, I take it very personally, <laughs> and um, much more so Jesus and his church. And I just think this is an invitation for us to deal perhaps with our hurt and our judgments towards the church, even repent where we've mistreated or spoken badly of it. How we treat the church is how we treat Christ. This particular church has been through some really rough times in the last few years, but it's still Christ's church. And so is the well, and so is St. Philip's, and so is Antioch and Crooks, and every other church in the city, every other community that follows Jesus. We want to bless and honor and build them up. And I just think there's something so important about this for us to respond to as a church as we come into the new season and the new things that God is wanting to do in and through us as a community. So that's Saul's conversion, of course, He'll go on from here. But I think one of the key emphasis is that Christ and the church are one. You can't love Jesus without loving his church. And how you treat the church is how you treat Christ. This he takes personally. That's very challenging, I know. And there's a lot of theology we could unpack there. But I'm just going to leave that to sit with us and let it, uh, let it challenge us. Okay, we've just got a couple more to look at. The next one is the very next chapter, Acts 10, Cornelius' conversion. Again, quite a famous story. Up to this point, all of the action has centered around the Jews and, and, and perhaps those on the fringes of Judaism. But in Acts 1.8, Jesus has said that this would go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And um, he was intent on bursting beyond the theological boundaries of the Jewish people. But it was very hard for the early church to understand this. Um, and if you remember at the beginning of Acts 10, Peter has this crazy vision of all these unclean animals in a sheet. You remember that? And um, three times it happens and a voice says to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, surely not, Lord, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And God speaks to him and says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So there's this sense 
God is beginning to break Peter out of this Jewish narrow cultural paradigm. And then, of course, he gets this invitation and he comes to Cornelius' house. Now, Cornelius is a Gentile. He's a God-fearer, but he's a Gentile. And it's interesting. Many people think of this as Cornelius' conversion. But actually, if you read the text closely, I think it's better to think of it as Peter's conversion to a different way of thinking. We're not really told much about how Cornelius changes, although I think we can assume that he does quite a lot. But Peter this great leader of the early church, has this encounter. He goes, you know, it's a big deal for him to even step into a Gentile home. And he goes there and he begins to proclaim the gospel. And I love the story because the Holy Spirit just whoosh, comes in and takes over, just kind of says, get out of the way, Peter. I'm coming in now. And, 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 and all of Cornelius' household is filled with the Spirit. And Peter is just standing there going, how is this even possible? And, 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 and later, he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. This story is about everyone being welcome in Christ's church. And it's hard, it's hard for us to understand the theological importance of this for the development of the early church, except to say if this wouldn't have happened, most of us wouldn't be here today. And I'm not sure that the church would be here today. This opened up the people of God to the world, to all the nations. And of course, the outworkings of this would take time to figure out. But it underscores Luke's basic message throughout his gospel and Acts, which is that the gospel is for everyone, all peoples, all nations, all ethnicities, all social statuses, in all places. And it was finally beginning to be a reality. Everyone is welcome. And I just wonder, in our church, are we that kind of church today? I remember when I was uh, leading a church my wife was involved with street workers in the red light district here in Sheffield. And I remember uh, she was doing a lot of ministry there. And we were grappling with this question. How can we be a church that welcomes people, all people, all kinds of people, all backgrounds of people into the church? It's a big thing to wrestle with. But I want us to contend for this same spirit of welcome, openness, and hospitality that began to emerge in the church, starting with Cornelius, and then, as we'll see, really culminating in the church at Antioch, which is our final, our final kind of story that we want to look at. So after Cornelius' conversion, um, um, at Barnabas, a church is started in a city called Antioch, and Barnabas goes and gets Saul, uh, who becomes Paul, and they help to lead this remarkable church. Uh, and we see details of it in chapters 11 and 13. And um, um, there's a few remarkable things about this church at Antioch. And, and, and just very quickly, it's the first church 
of mixed ethnicity. And, and, and Acts makes a big deal about this. Um, you know, they start just among Jews, and then in verse 20 of Acts 11, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And a great number believed. And so this church begins to forge the trail of what does it look like to be a multicultural, multi-ethnic church, to bridge the gap between very diverse people with different backgrounds. And Luke is saying that this unity of people from very different backgrounds speaks powerfully of God's glory and God's presence among them. And um, so that's quite interesting. Another interesting thing about it is it's the first place where um, followers of Christ are called Christians. And actually, the word Christians was at first a derogatory word uh, that, that, that they used as an insult. It literally means little Christ, which actually, what a compliment that would be. They were so like Christ <laughs> that, that they called them little Christs. And... Um, um, uh, again, I just, uh, Christian has gained such a difficult connotation today, but I wonder if there's a way to recover this Christ-like character and heart that becomes our reputation. So that's quite interesting. The church at Antioch was a place characterized by prayer, by fasting, and the presence of God. Um, they had this leadership team, um, interestingly, a diverse leadership team culturally, and then in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It's this powerful model of the, the literal Greek is ministering to the Lord. Uh, worship, fasting, prayer, listening to God. An environment saturated with those things, devoted to his presence very similar to Jerusalem. And then, of course, out of that, we know what happened. After they had fasted and prayed some more, after hearing from God, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And this was the first place of intentional mission in the early church. Up to this point, mission and evangelism had just been as they went, often fleeing from persecution or going from place to place, letting God break in as they went, praying for people, which is so good. But this becomes a bit of a strategy. Let's, let's lay hands on them. Let's commission them. Let's send them out to do missional work. And, of course, out of that comes the stories that we know quite well of Paul's church planting journeys and um, the various things that God accomplished through him. But I think it's very connected to this environment of intense devotion to the presence of God, fasting, worship, prayer, prophetic anointing, sensitivity to the Spirit of God. And that was the beginning of a missions movement, which, of course, continues to this very day. Paul and Barnabas go out from there and plant at least 13 key churches. And I think there's an invitation here as well as we become this kind of church. There's an invitation to join in this great mission, which is still continuing today to our neighbors, to our communities, to unreached people around the world. That same missional mandate will 
take us over as we devote ourselves to God's presence. And we see signs of that happening in lots of places. So, phew, we have just ran very quickly through the story. And, of course, from there, things just really get exciting. But we've looked at a few key characteristics that Acts seems to be saying to us about the church. The church is birthed by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit at Pentecost is the initiator. The church is protected and nurtured by the Spirit. If you remember, we saw that with Ananias and Sapphira. The the church is one with Christ. It is the body of Christ. We see that many places, but especially at Saul's conversion. Everyone is invited, no matter what, no matter their background, ethnicity, status. God has no favorites. It's filled with his transforming presence. And that sense of awe, that holy sense of God's presence um, transforms lives and dramatically draws people into it. And it's a base for radical mission, which changes the world. As we devote ourselves to God's presence, God speaks to us, set apart for me, and we respond. It's a beautiful picture, which I've just painted in very broad strokes, but I hope it's inspired you. I hope it's challenged you. I hope it's encouraged you to believe again. And I was just trying to think, how do we respond to a message like this? How do we respond in our own hearts? And I want you to take a a minute or two and to think about what God is specifically highlighting to you. But I wanted to mention a few key themes that I think he's speaking about. One thing I think we can respond to is the judgments we may be carrying about the church or the disappointments. Many of us have believed in the past and then we felt disappointed. Oh, it didn't turn out quite the way we had quite the way we had hoped or the way we had thought. And I feel the invitation to believe again, to receive that kind of fresh faith again. Perhaps it's also about repenting for mistreating the church or speaking against, speaking negatively to the church. We've all been hurt. If you're, if you, if you are in the church for long, you will have been hurt, right? It's inevitable after a while, but this is a chance to let that baggage go and to believe again in the value and power of the body of Christ. And um, I just think This is something God's been doing for a while, but to receive, to take hold of the new things, we've got to let go of some of the old. To serve the church is to serve Christ himself, and maybe for some of you it's asking the question, how can I do this today? What's one way I can join in serving his church or join in with the mission? And I guess the biggest thing I'm praying is, Lord, help us to see and love your church as you do to be the church you long for. Give us your heart. So can we just all stand together as we respond? Um, We're going to sing a worship song about being the church and being one, and it's a good chance for you to just deal with God and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. What is the one thing that he's highlighting to you that you can respond to this morning? And, and I'm going to pray for us now. And then we'll have a little more focused time to pray for one another in a few moments.
Holy Spirit, thank you that you love your church so much. That your heart is so for uh, this church, all of the missional communities within it, and all of the churches in our city, in this nation, and around the world. And I pray that you would give us your heart to love and your eyes to see your church as you do. And I ask, please give us the grace today to let go of places of hurt, disappointment, pain, even places where we've just held you or your church at a distance, and to say yes again, to believe again, to embrace uh, the new things that you're doing. And we pray, Lord Jesus, make our church here a glorious church filled with your presence, filled with that sense of awe, where everyone is welcome and invited and where we see you moving powerfully. Lord, have your way with us. We really give this community and this new season, this new uh, academic year as it's beginning to you. Move in power in the name of Jesus.